It's Pulisic. Legit. Plenty of targets in the box. Lovely delivery for Pepe left behind. Robinson! It's an instant response straight out of the halftime break. Anthony Robinson with the equalizing goal for the Americans. Lovely cross. Pepe! Pepe by name and Pepe by nature! The youthful exuberance of the teenager has fired the Americans into the lead. I was ready for the opportunity if it was given to me. Um, when Greg told me that I was going to start on the plane on the way here. So, you know, it was, it was very special. I was prepared for the moment and then, you know, I took advantage of it. This is the SBI Show. Hello, everybody. I'm Ivis Scalarsip and it is Saturday and the international window has come and gone. And the U.S. men's national team has their five points in the bag and it didn't come easily but the americans did get their win they got their road win in honduras in dramatic fashion and we definitely have to talk about the roller coaster ride they took u.s men's national team fans on on wednesday one of the worst first half performances in recent memory followed by one of the best second half performances and greg berhalter's team Sitting pretty with five points after uh, what looked like it was going to be <laughs> not not the best window, especially uh, at halftime on Wednesday. But credit to the Americans, credit to the U.S. men's national team. They turned it around. We'll be talking about that. We'll be getting into detail into everything that went wrong in the first half, everything that went right in the second half and all the obstacles that this team was able to overcome. And of course, we'll get into a little Americans abroad as the Americans that were with the U.S. men's national team returned to Europe. Now, to be fair, it wasn't the best international window for the USMNT contingent that's based in Europe. It was actually a uh, surprisingly difficult uh, and physically demanding window. And in some cases, a very disappointing window. For some of the top Americans abroad performers, but for the ones who are for the ones who aren't now sidelined by injury, you have quite a few who are are facing you know new challenges. It's back to the club season, and uh, we'll get into that as well. We'll talk a little MLS at the end. But first things first, we obviously have to talk about the U.S. men's national team, Honduras, on Wednesday in San Pedro Sula, and uh, it was a it was the Ricardo Pepe show, and he the FC Dallas teenager, the eighteen year old. Really just stole the show for the for the Americans, uh, helped really lead the turnaround in the second half. He, along with the substitutions made by Greg Berhalter, who was able to clean up the mess that uh, his team made in the first half and with the with some of the lineup uh, decisions that he made, the, the tactical decisions that he made. And I'm sure at the end of that match, I could tell you if, if you saw the press conference, if you saw his postgame press conference, you could see he was happy, but you could kind of tell he was relieved. You know, it's kind of one of those where even though he didn't say it, even though he didn't step out and say, look, you know, I got it wrong. I put out the wrong lineup. I put out the wrong system. Uh, you know, you could tell that he was he was <laughs> there was some relief there. And one thing I've learned over the years is that it's rare to find a coach who will just flat out say, look, I got it wrong. And I kind of was, you know, I kind of thought maybe he would be that coach to do that. But no, he did not. He, uh, you know, he kind of laid out what happened in the first half. And it really came down to it as far as he was concerned. Uh, just, uh, you know, some players just not doing what the task required and, and not doing what the roles required. I still think he got it wrong. Personally, I still think he, you know, as far as the first half goes. Definitely should not have uh, some of the some of the lineup decisions were definitely question marks there. Although at the end, now that they win, now that they turned it around, now that he made the moves that he made, 
he can sit there and say, well, this is how I drew it up. I drew it up with the idea that the second half we would take over, we would make substitutions, we would have players come off the bench and make an impact and and eventually beat out a Honduras team that just wasn't going to be as deep as the U.S. were. And it's easy to say that now <laughs> because obviously, you know, it's not like Berhalter was going to share that game plan beforehand. But we do have to talk about, first things first, Ricardo Pepe and what a performance the FC Dallas striker who obviously already made U.S. national team fans happy by choosing the United States. As you know, he could have played for Mexico, and there was all the talk about, would he play for the U.S.? Would he play for Mexico? And ultimately, he chose the United States, and the September qualifiers were going to be, hopefully, the, the first opportunity to have a look at him. And he didn't play in either of the first two matches. And when that happened, you thought, well, I thought, I was like, okay, well, maybe we'll see him off the bench in the third game just so he can kind of get a taste of the international game. But credit to Greg Berhalter. He saw something in Pepe that gave him confidence that Pepe could be could handle starting in his debut. And starting in a, in a I don't want to call it a must-win game, but a very, very important match for a team that only had two points from two games. And while there's definitely a risk of of starting a player who, you know, 18 years old, never played played a national team game before, you're also talking about a player who's in very good form coming into the international window. I mean, he was on, he was just lighting it up. He was scoring goals for FC Dallas. He he, he showed uh, he was great in the all-star game. He scored the winning penalty, just took it up and blasted it. And when you saw that, that lets you know that this kid is in the zone right now. And I'm sure, I'm sure Greg Berhalter saw that and knew that coming in. And I'm sure he saw that in training. He saw a player with just supreme confidence that even though he's 18, he's just in that kind of mode where I'm just, I'm just going to score any chance I get. I'm just going to be that hungry. And he, and that's what we saw. We saw a player who was very hungry, even in the first half when the team was not playing well, when the team just looked a hot mess particularly in the midfield and in the back. You saw Pepe up top really just running around, trying to make things happen, trying to press, even though that's not that wasn't really the kind of the strategy, but he was active. And then in the second half, when the substitutions came in and helped kind of straighten things out, and when Burholter switched from the 5-4-1 to the 4-3-3, the you really saw things stabilize, and you really saw the service find its way to Pepe, and he took full advantage of it. And he had a hand. He actually had a hand in all four goals. As much as you could say, well, the first goal. What did he? How much did he know about that touch? Did he got a touch on it? Did he really mean the back heel? Look, he had a hand in it. We're just gonna say he had a hand in it. But how about that though? Eighteen years old, first international start. You get a goal. You get, I think, at least two assists. But he was involved in every goal. Uh, whether it was laying one off, laying the press off, pass off to Aronson, the intentional, unintentional back heel to Anthony Robinson on the first goal. He had his he had a shot saved that led to Sebastian Legette's goal to kind of seal things at 4-1. So he was all over everything. He had his hands in everything. And obviously, you know, Greg Berhalter had to be pretty happy with the teenager. I thought he did a great job. I thought, I mean, t- work tires tirelessly. Um, you know, competed against physical center backs, scored a, a really good goal, um, and you know, overall, I think had a had a strong performance. You know, for an 18 year old, it, it's it really impressive what he did. Now, while Berhalter was clearly and understandably happy with how Ricardo Pepe performed, I have to say there were definitely a, a few other starters that he could not have been happy about, and that did not make Berhalter's decisions for a starting lineup look all that good. And you have to start with uh, George Bello at left back. Not to say that he was the worst player, but that for me was probably the most surprising one. Although after the match, Berhalter laid out that, in his opinion, he thought Anthony Robinson physically wasn't able or wasn't going to be able to give you a start 
uh, a 90 minute performance. So he saw the opportunity to play him at, you know, bring him in the second half and have him make an impact, which obviously is what happened. And you can understand he, if he believed in Bello because Bello started the gold cup final against Mexico sold out stadium. So as, as much as Bello's young, he showed really well on that stage and that platform against a very tough opponent. So, I, I mean, I can understand why he made that call, but it didn't look really good on the day in Honduras. Bello just did not look up for it. He obviously fell asleep on the Honduras goal. But, you know, also, look, he's still young. It's still his first taste of, of uh, you know, a road qualifier in CONCACAF. So something that something that I kind of want to touch on in this is as much as, yes, you can say certain players did not play well and did not perform well, you definitely have to make sure you keep the context because I, I really definitely get the sense that some people are ready to write off players because of how badly they performed, whether in this window or whether specifically in this match. And you really have to be careful because, look, some of these players young, are very young getting their first experience in CONCACAF qualifying. So just because they have a rough go in this does not mean, you know, you throw them out and they're no longer a factor. They're no longer worth, uh, you know, bringing in. And I would I would say that about George Bello. And I would also say that about James Sands, who, you know, he had a rough day. He had a rough day at the office. He just looked out. He just didn't look uh, comfortable. And obviously, as much as he is does have that versatility to be able to play as a center back, but also as a defensive midfielder on this day against Honduras, James Sands just did not look uh, very comfortable as much as he tried to fight his way through it. You know, I thought he had a really interesting game, um, some ups and downs, but a really good experience for him. You can see that he's a competitor. Now, I got to give Greg Berhalter a little credit there because, you know, he said that Sands had an interesting game and that, and that's kind of code for a bad game. But look, he's not going to trash an eight, uh, a 20 year old, 21 year old uh player playing in his first qualifier you just like i think he understands look it was a tough assignment he definitely tried to battle through it he tried to fight through it and it was it wasn't a great day for him and you know does that mean that he's still not a useful uh player for the pool and does that mean he 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 has a bright future and and upside he's still a talented prospect but this day on this day he did not have a good game he did not play well at all but you know what? It's the kind of thing you learn from. And I've said this. I, th- I feel like I've said this in multiple episodes. Landon Donovan's first qualifier, uh, I believe, was against Honduras, the one in, in, in RFK in 2001, when the U.S. lost 3-2 uh, to two to Honduras at RFK in what was like a 65 to 70% pro-Honduran crowd. And on that day, Landon Donovan did not look the part. He did not play well. He struggled. And that was at home as much as, you know, it was a kind of a, a, a dominant away crowd. And, you know, if you didn't know any better and you just watched that game, you might think, oh, well, Landon Donovan, this, this Landon Donovan kids, he's not, he's not the real deal. He's not legit. He's not, you know, does not expect too much from him, but guess what? I think he he ended up doing pretty well for himself, and that's I, I really feel like people need to keep that in mind and keep that kind of context in mind when you kind of react or overreact to an individual performance, especially among young players. I mean, 18, 19, 20, 21. I mean, you know, in the first road qualifier. I mean, come on. Like, yes, these players did not play well. Bellow did not play well. Sands did not play well. But let's take it easy in saying, okay, they just aren't any good. You know what? They struggled. They learned. But they still have way too much talent to write them off and to think that they can't still help in at some point in the octagon. Uh, and now as far as another player who did not play well but who isn't young and who was a surprising player on the list of those who struggled, John Brooks and obviously against Canada he not ha- he did not have a good game. 
He did not have his his best game. And you thought, okay, look, it's Canada. They have that speed. You can understand how it's not a great matchup for him. But then for John Brooks to come out and play an absolutely terrible 45 minutes. So bad, in fact, that he was replaced at halftime. I mean, we're talking about a player that, you know, before the September window, he'd probably be one of the first names you'd write on the, on the starting lineup sheet. I mean, it's Pulisic and then him. And just in terms of who replaces him and, and he's just your pick as your left center back. And it was just, he just did not look good. He didn't look comfortable. He just was roaming into bad bad positions, uh, which was allowing him to get exposed. And the one thing I would say is I was surprised that Berhalter chose to deploy him as the central center back, as the middle center back in the three center back setup. And number one, he's left footed, very, very quality. The bet, you know, maybe Tim Reem has a better left foot in terms of just passing, but John Brooks, very good left footed center back. Why would you play him centrally where he could get exposed. His speed, could, his lack of speed, could get exposed when you could put him on the left. Now, I guess I could understand if you think you want him to be your kind of orchestrator in the middle. You want him to pass. You want him to, you know, knock the ball around. I guess I can understand that, but at the same time, maybe you know. I guess if Greg Berhalter didn't feel that Mark McKenzie or Miles Robinson could handle that distributor role in the middle, if anything. As I said before the match, when I was projecting lineups out, I really thought James Sands would handle that role. I really thought if you're going to play three, first of all, to be clear, I recommended that they that they play five in the back. So I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, what a mistake to play five in the back, because I thought he should play five in the back. For me, it was decisions that he made personnel-wise that set this team up to struggle. And number one, it was Bellow over Anthony Robinson, which he chalked up to not believing Robinson could be a 90-minute player. So, okay, fine. But then to... Play James Sands in the midfield instead of at center back where he's been playing a lot more this year and it clearly looked comfortable in the Gold Cup. You don't play him there and then you play John Brooks in the middle. And Brooks just, you know, in that he it, he almost had too much freedom playing in that central spot. He had too much freedom to float into the midfield. And there's a difference between a James Sands doing that much quicker player. Then a John Brooks, six foot four, you know, not the fleetest of foot players at center back floating into the midfield and getting caught up field. And that's what happened. That's why for me, tactically, personnel wise, Berhalter made a mistake. They're deploying him centrally. Now, if that's Brooks saying, hey, I, I, I want to be in the middle. I want to be the orchestrator. I want to kind of be the captain of the middle and, and, and be able to have the, have the most of the ball. I guess I can understand that. But you know what? I don't know. As a coach for me. I'm putting Brooks on the left where he can be on his dominant foot, play Miles Robinson centrally where he can just kind of have command of things and play Mark McKenzie on the right. I had no idea why. I mean, I can understand why, but I thought looking at it like I just did, I saw that being a potential issue and obviously it became an issue. You replaced John Brooks at halftime. So that was another one. And then obviously Tyler Adams at right wing back. And I know some people were freaking out about that. Like, oh, what are you doing playing him out of position? Yes, the number six position is his best position. But he's played right wing back a lot in his career. He played it his first season as a starter in MLS under Jesse Marsh. He played it quite a bit last year for Red for uh, Red Bull or for RB Leipzig. So having said all that, I thought we would see Kellen Acosta in that role. Now, I know you can say, well, Kellen Acosta doesn't have quite as much experience as Tyler Adams in that kind of role. So that I'm sure that would be Greg Berhalter's answer to that. And I get that, but at the same time, Kellen Acosta has shown himself to be in recent months to be a player that, you know what, if you where, where you play him, he he can do he can do the job. And Tyler Adams is such a dominant presence in the middle, such a force in the middle that I don't know how you take him out of that engine room. I just, for me, you don't do it. You don't take him out of that engine room, especially 
when you have a player like Kellen Acosta who has that kind of versatility. And if you absolutely don't think DeAndre Edlin can give you 90 minutes, uh, okay, fine. But for me, I thought those roles should have been switched. Kellen Acosta should have been the right wing back. Tyler Adams should have been in the middle. And anyone who reads SBI knows these things already because that, that was basically the lineup that I projected or that I suggested for Berhalter to go with. And clearly, uh, like I'm not sitting here saying I know more than Greg Berhalter, but you, when you look at the players who struggled in the first half in roles that were, it was a little surprising that they were deployed in. Bellow, absolutely. Brooks, in that in the middle, definitely. And Tyler Adams struggled. Tyler Adams struggled at right wing back and you know you can kind of chalk it up a little bit to fatigue because he was playing his, he was starting his third straight match uh of the qual- of the week in qualifying so I was a little surprised he did that at the same time I could also see Berhalter looking at it as look if they deploy if Honduras deploys Anthony Lozano on that side of the field I want Tyler Adams to lock him down so from there, okay, I could kind of understand that, but you know, as you as you saw things play out, as you watch that first 10, 15, 20 minutes go by, you're you're seeing Adams kind of struggle. I make a switch there. I make a tactical switch. You go you and you flip them. You flip Adams and Acosta. Acosta could have definitely handled that. And I, I think honestly, the US and I don't think it's talked about enough. The US were so vulnerable and so bad in that first half that a, a better team absolutely could have punished them and Honduras for me as much as they they had the better of the play in the first half and they scored that first goal they didn't impress me in that first half they didn't look super threatening they didn't look super dangerous they 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 had some moments Andy Nahar looked great um and Jonathan Rubio you know showed some things but they for me like they they didn't look like a team that was really going to just bury the US but they, the US was there to be buried and they got lucky they got lucky that it was only 1-0 at halftime but enough about what happened in the bad terrible awful first half because uh you know what I think you know Berhalter will be the first to tell you that the the team didn't respond well and especially didn't respond well after that Honduras goal now, enough of the first half. Uh, sorry to talk you through that and walk you through that and make you you know relive that and have the PTSD associated with already having endured that awful first half. Apologies, I'm sorry, but I'm about to take you now to the good side, to the second half, which was absolutely a dream if you're a U.S. fan. Greg Berhalter, to his credit, he knew right away what he had to do. And as much as he can say it was, you know, that, that they planned to make changes, there's no way in his on his notebook he had halftime. I'm going to triple sub and change my formation. No way that was the plan. But he did it to his credit. He he was decisive. He made the the moves that he had to make, including benching John Brooks. And I got to say that could not have been easy. Because John Brooks, being the player who he is, and you know the the veteran and and kind of the the uh, f- a key figure on that team, but Berhalter benched him because he had to because he just did not look comfortable. And this isn't the first time Berhalter has struggled. That um, Berhalter, this isn't the first time that John Brooks has struggled in Central America. We all remember the game against Costa Rica when he was just atrocious. It was that was one of the worst games in the history of the US men's national team for a defender. It was and he even I even had a chance to talk to Brooks about that when I interviewed him a few months back and he even admitted he's like I don't even know how, how it happened. I don't even know what happened. It's like, you know, he, he thinks back on it now and it's just it's like mind-boggling to him how, like it was like an out of body experience how bad that game was for him. Now he wasn't as bad against Honduras as he was against Costa Rica, but he was bad. And credit to Greg Berhalter, he made the decisions that he had to make and he brought in the people 
that he had to bring in. And he brought in Anthony Robinson, Sebastian Legette, Brendan Aronson, and he took out Josh Sargent, he took out John Brooks, and he took out George Bellow, and it was a night and day. And right off the bat, three minutes in, Anthony Robinson scores the goal, equalizer, does the the, the backflip. And I got to say, Anthony Robinson, think about a guy who two years ago uh, fails to make the Gold Cup team, struggles against Jamaica in the friendly, and, and that pretty much sealed his fate wasn't going to be part of the Gold Cup team. And at that point, there's definitely conversations about, does Greg Berhalter rate Anthony Robinson? And there was definitely a sense that he doesn't like him. He doesn't think he doesn't fit his style. He's not he's not a super technical left back. He's not someone who can really pass uh, like well in terms of combining, in terms of that kind of you know combination play that, that he would like from a left back in that system. But guess what? Anthony Robinson, all he's done for the last two years is continue to improve and to play and to play consistently. We all know about the the, the almost move to AC Milan that obviously fell through because of a heart defect that was uh, detected in a, in his physical. Um, but he has continued to improve in as much as, yes, Fulham was relegated. But he is still a highly regarded left back who's playing well. And now he's crushing it with Fulham in the league championship. It's safe to say he's not going to be in the league championship for long. Maybe this year if he stays with Fulham. But whether or not Fulham gets uh, promoted, obviously they're in first place right now. But Robinson has been playing great. He's been one of their best players. And now you saw that with the U.S. Left back's his position. It's his, like, he should be the starting left back at this point. And especially with Serginho Dest just looking like he wants no part of left back, uh, no part of defending at left back, and just he just looks so out of sorts at left back that that no longer looks like the solution. And with Serginho Dest not being the solution and just not being an option, really, Anthony Robinson has to be your guy. And he showed it again with his second half performance that he had. He was great. He looked unbelievable uh, in his 45 minutes. And how about Sebastian Lejet? The guy gets so much slander, so much flack from the, I don't want to say just from the anti-MLS contingent, but they're obviously fans who want younger players, who want the European base players. Sebastian Leggett is older, he's in MLS, he's, he doesn't have the upside. You hear all the knocks against Leggett. But guess what? Leggett finds a way to make things happen. He gets on that field, he's a veteran, he has the skill, the talent to create to whether it's score goals himself or help set up goals, he makes things happen. Every chance he gets with the national team, he finds a way to make things happen. And what happens? He comes in the second half and he makes things happen. And listen, obviously if the fans pick the roster, he probably wouldn't be on it. Actually, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't be on it because a lot of fans would rather have young players like, you know, whether it, you know, Luca Delator, who's kind of become this flavor of the month because he had a, 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 a promising 20 minute cameo in a random friendly. Everyone's in love with this guy. And I'm not going to say Luca Delator is not a good player, but people are out of control with this because. If you're asking me who I'd rather play, if I if I have a game that I need to win, who am I playing? Sebastian Legette or Luca Delator? I'm playing. I mean, I'm playing Sebastian Legette ten times out of ten. Sorry, Luca Delator, you you know, promising player. He's really done well to establish himself in the Eredivisie with Her- Heracles. But Sebastian Legette, if anyone honestly doesn't think that Sebastian Legette can can if he if he were available to go to the Eredivisie, they don't think he could go to the Eredivisie and start, then you're just clueless because when it comes down to it, he is in MLS with the LA Galaxy. He is because he is making bank with the Galaxy. He's making good money. He's later in his career now. He's 29. He 
did the Europe thing. He was at West Ham for however many years and couldn't break through with the first team. He had the injury issues, what have you, but he was a highly regarded younger player. And obviously, when he was in his early 20s, in an ideal situation, he would have gone and gone on some loans and played. But unfortunately, West Ham, he was stuck there and he just stagnated. His career stagnated, unfortunately. But the talent was always there. He was always a super skilled player. He just happens to be older now. He's settled in an MLS. But he's a very good player. And it just boggles my mind how much flack that he gets from a certain segment of the fan base. But here we are. Big game, Honduras, he comes on. He comes off the bench, and he delivers again. Let's not forget now, he also scored against Honduras in the last World Cup qualifying cycle. So for me, I would just say, folks, I'm not telling you that you need to think that Sebastian Lejet is you know, Bruno Fernandez or, some, or, or someone like that, but he can make things happen. He can give you uh, value on your roster, on this U.S. men's national team roster. And is there a generation coming along to take him out? Of the star, a potential starting role, absolutely. There's you know Yunus Musa, super talented. Giorena eventually could play centrally. So yes, uh, is there a probability or possibility that Lejet's not going to get a chance to start in in the coming years? Absolutely, because there's that young talent coming along. But for right now, he gives you value in that, and he showed it. He showed it. Christian Roldan showed it coming off the bench as well. He played a part in this turnaround. And I just think people need to give these guys a little more respect because they just, you know what? They have value and they can, especially when you talk about a young team. And a young team that you know, players who've never been through this, never been through qualifying, don't have the games under their belt as much as, yes, some of these players have played in big, high-profile matches in Europe. It's a different element. It's a different animal. World Cup qualifying, playing in CONCACAF, it's a different experience. But credit to Legette, credit to Christian Roldan, coming off the bench and making an impact. And another veteran who made an impact, DeAndre Yedlin, coming off the bench. And obviously, from a fitness standpoint, he w- it, w- it was, uh, it's, as far as Yedlin goes, I can understand. The Robinson one, I was a little surprised by. Now, if he picked up a knock against Canada that we don't know about, maybe that's something different. But for me, Yedlin, I understood. He's not someone who you were going to expect to have a heavy workload of minutes in September because he's just not playing a ton for Galatasaray. But he comes off the bench and delivers that perfect cross in on the goal and you know what you got to give you got to give Yellen credit because not only he especially against Canada coming off the game that he had he was he struggled against Canada there's no other way to say it he got absolutely torched by uh, Alfonso Davies and people were done with him people were like oh man he's he's washed he's it's done like don't bring him back again let's go to these other younger center backs I mean uh, other young right backs enough with Yellen Yellen's time is done with the national team I mean I was hearing that and guess what he steps up comes off the bench and is huge in the turnaround. So it's just, there's a theme here. And the theme is, it's okay if you want to rip on a player and say this player is having a bad game or has had a bad game. But maybe take it easy with burying players and thinking they are absolutely done because they might struggle in a game. Now, if there are players that, you know what, four or five, you know, three, four or five games that they continue, they just don't do it. Uh, you know what? At that point, you you know what? I I totally am with people. If if you want to write off someone because they could, you know, they continuously don't deliver, that's how that's what you do. You're entitled to do that. But the one game overreactions on players, whether it's positive or negative, we've seen it. 
We've seen players have, you know, they have a great game. Oh, my Lord, that's it. They are it. They are it. They're going to do this every game. That's just not reality, folks. And on the other side of that coin, just because players struggle and have a rough game against elite competition, like Yedlin got torched by Alfonso Davies. He's not, Alfonso Davies is not chopped liver. I mean, Alfonso Davies is one of the best players in the world. And we're acting like, you know, Yedlin got torched by, you know, some, you know, lower division player. Like, seriously. But credit to Yedlin comes off the bench. And when you consider what's going on with the right back position and all the young options, uh, and then you have a Shaq Moore get back into the picture. You know, Yedlin, it's almost like Berhalter's looking for anyone to kind of step in and push him out. Not that that's happening, but. Yellen's facing a lot of competition. And then he has this situation at Galatasaray where he's not getting consistent playing time. So he's facing a lot of challenges. And guess what? He still steps up, delivers that pass, and has a great game off the bench. So credit to DeAndre Yellen. Now, another player that uh, not just this game against Honduras, but the entire September window that we have to talk about, taking full advantage of the situation, Matt Turner. Matt Turner is your starter now. He is the starting goalkeeper. All apologies to Zach Steffen, Ethan Horvath. Sorry, guys. Matt Turner is the starter now. He is the U.S. Men's National Team starter until further notice. And when it comes down to it, it's twofold. It's two things. One, he's playing consistently, and he has answered the call every single time. He's played well every single time. So when you get that, when you get a player that has performed every single time, no matter the stage, no matter the opponent, you have to, you just, that's it. You just have to, he's the guy. So number one, you have that. But number two, Zach Steffen and Ethan Horvath are not starting for their clubs. So at that point, everything is in line for Turner to be your guy. And you know what, as a, if you're Greg Berhalter, you, as tough as it is, as much as, you know, obviously Zach Steffen is someone that he rates highly and who does bring a lot to the table and, and who is a good fit for the system because of his passing ability. When it comes down to it, Turner is such a strong player right now, such an informed player, and he's playing with such confidence and his teammates have confidence in him now. Because they've seen him perform multiple times in high-pressure situations, whether it's the Gold Cup final, whether it's qualifiers against, you know, all these qualifiers in September. I mean, the save that he makes when it's 1-1, if he doesn't make that save, Honduras is taking the the 2-1 lead, and it might not matter at that point what the substitutes do. Maybe the substitutes fight back, and and they can get it back to 2-2. Honduras takes the air out of the ball. It's a whole different game. But Matt Turner makes the save he needs to make. He made two saves. It's not like he made 20 saves on the night. He makes two saves, but he made the saves he needed to make. And that's been the story of his career with the national team already in 2021. Now that he's broken through, he makes the saves that he needs to make. And then he makes the big saves that are not easy. So when you take all that into account in the form that he's in, he's your guy. Until further notice, until, you know, until he struggles, until he shows some chinks in that armor, he is your guy. He's your guy in October. Uh, you just got. I, I I don't see how you don't make him your starter in October, and I think Greg Berhalter at that, at this point you have to say that's what's going to happen. Now, one player you knew I wasn't going to forget, and it's funny because I just talked about Matt Turner, but Brendan Aronson. This is this is the unofficial New Jersey, uh, the New Jersey native sec, uh, portion of the of the episode. But Brendan Aronson, we're talking about a guy who in that first game against El Salvador he gets to start his first qualifier, and he had a bad game. 
There's no other way to say it. He had a bad game. He struggled. He just, it, it was a rough day for him. But guess what? He rebounded from that. Steps up against Canada. Plays great against Canada. Steps up. Comes off the bench against Honduras. Plays great against Honduras. And now we're talking about a player who obviously came into the September window in great form. But then he has that game against El Salvador. And you're kind of like, well, which, what's what's the deal? Is he Is he legit or not? And... I think at this point, he's answered those questions. He's legit. He's someone you can count on as a potential starter or definitely off the bench. He definitely gives you that energy. He can press. He can get into the attack. He can finish. He can set passes up. He can he can deliver the key pass. So he can do it all. And whatever happened in that El Salvador game, whether it was just jitters, whether it was, you know, whatever it was, going back to my point, you can't write these players off, particularly the young players, off of singular bad performances or even one or two bad performances because sometimes players you know what it takes them some time or maybe they have a bad day in their first game there's you always have to look you know give them that opportunity to grow and that's really what it's been about just for the group as a whole but Aronson is kind of a good microcosm of that and and I think kind of you know Greg Berhalter you know put that whole thing in in some pretty good perspective I think it's a it's a good win for the group. Uh, you know, it's we did a lot of talking before the camp, you know, before the first game about it being a 9-point week and that was really important and and I think that's great to have high expectations. Everyone wants to to win games, right? But the other side of it is it's just talk, right? And then you have to go out and do it and it's very difficult to do. And I think that we needed to give these guys that experience. They needed to see what these games are like. Because they're completely different games, you know. Both the El Salvador and the and the Honduras game is, you know, is they're wars. You know, you have teams and countries that are desperate to get wins to get in the World Cup, and it's it's a different animal than we were used to. So, I think the, this whole window was great for this group. We really needed that in terms of the the eye opening um, of of what this experience actually is. So to, to cap it off with a win is, was important for, for the standings. You know, we're in second place now. And also to come back in the way we did. You know, the U.S. doesn't come back after giving up a goal too often. And the guys showed their resiliency like we've shown many times before. So overall, you know, happy with the effort of the team. So the U.S., as things stand, are on five points. They're tied for second with Canada. Technically, they're in third place right now. Canada's in second on on uh, superior goal difference, goal scored, I believe. However, you have to also consider the fact that Canada's played two home games and the U.S. has only played one home game. So even though they're tied and even though technically Canada's in second place by the you know, the the clear tiebreaker. If you look at it from the context of the U.S. has only played one road game, I mean, one home game, the U.S. is actually in a better situation right now than Canada in terms of that. So now it comes, now October comes, and now you're going to have that next set of three qualifiers. And the U.S. is, uh, it was a rough September. There's no other way to say it. You had so many challenges. You had the injuries. You had G. Arena go down after the first game. You had Weston McKinney with his suspension. You had the whole Zach Steffen back spasms followed by COVID. I mean, everything that was thrown at this team and for them to get the five points, especially considering how young this team is. And that that, that can't be talked about enough. I mean, the team that played Honduras in the third qualifier was the youngest team the youngest u.s team to ever uh, play in a world cup qualifier and you have to consider not only young but l- light on experience and for this for this group to come together 
And for these experiences to galvanize the group, I mean, I'm sure, listen, as a fan, I get it. Like, it was not the most fun ride. The September friendlies was, they, they were not the most pleasurable experience from beginning to end, right? Especially, you know, the El Salvador match, as frustrating as it was. The Canada match, which I'm sure, you know, a lot of U.S. fans came away feeling like, man, Canada really was better than us. We were probably lucky to even get a point. So when you take all that, you, I, I can totally see how there was there, there's kind of these mixed emotions among U.S. fans about the September qualifiers. But when it comes down to it, the team got five points. And, and as importantly, as important as those five points, the group gained experience, invaluable experience that's going to help this group, this young group, moving on into the octagonal. If we want to write stories, I think we should write stories about this group and just how young this group is and, and trying to do what we're trying to do. Um, you know, traditionally, we're going into qualifying with a, with a team that's three to four years o- older than, than av- the average age is three to four years older. I mean, this is an extremely young group, has no experience going through this before, and, um, and they're grinding. And, they're, and it's not always going to be pretty, and it's not always going to go our way. There's going to be more ups and downs throughout the course of qualifying. But the key is just keep going and, and, keep, um, and keep focused on improving and getting better. And if we can do that, we'll, we'll be fine. Now, obviously, it was a, <laughs> moving on to the Americans Abroad portion of the show. And uh, talk about a mash unit of uh, the, the walking wounded, the, uh, the Americans Abroad. When you think about all the players who are hobbled now coming out of the international break, you have Christian Pulisic, who's going to miss... I want to say at least three matches for Chelsea with the ankle injury he suffered against Honduras. You have Gio Reyna, who suffered a hamstring injury against El Salvador. Played the 90 minutes against El Salvador, but came out of that with an injury. Didn't play the next two qualifiers. And now he is reportedly going to miss the the rest of September uh, with that hamstring injury. So that's two right there. Josh Sargent apparently has a thigh injury that's going to keep him out now. It's unclear how long he's going to be out for, but he's missing Saturday's match for Norwich City. And then you obviously have Tim Weah, who was injured before the September qualifiers, so he didn't even chance to get to play in the September qualifiers. And then you have Tyler Adams, who isn't injured, knock on wood, but he played the entire September window. And credit to Tyler Adams, because he's such a warrior. He's such a warrior. And uh, I, I feel bad I didn't talk about him in the second half, in the segment of the second half, because as I, I did say, he struggled a bit in the first half. He didn't have the best first half, but in the second half, he was huge. He was huge for the U.S. And unfortunately for him now, he played so many minutes in, in the September window that now he returns to RB Leipzig. And RB Leipzig plays Bayern Munich in a huge match, huge Bundesliga match. But if you're Jesse Marsh, you understand Tyler Adams and the workload that he's taken on with the U.S. national team. So he probably isn't going to play against Bayern, definitely not going to start against Bayern. And it just shows you just kind of the impact that the window and this new uh, compact World Cup qualifying schedule has on players because it used to be two games in a window. And, you know, the players had, a you know, whether it was a week and a half or whatever to kind of absorb that, to, that those two games. Now you're talking three games in a week. And even though, generally speaking, you aren't expecting teams to play players for all three games, just the grind of qualifying, especially in CONCACAF, is going to take its toll. And it's definitely taking its toll, as I just said, when you think about that list of players, key players who are going to be out now for, for some matches and how you wonder how it's going to affect those players even coming into this October window. October, The October qualifiers will be here before you know it. I mean, we're talking still 
uh, about three weeks at least. Well, actually, it's about three weeks before the teams are reporting for camp. Um, that's not that that's not that much time. So, you know, maybe Giorena is not available in October. Who knows what's going on with Pulisic by then? Uh, what what's Tim Weah situation? So the depth of the player pool is going to come into such is going to be huge. It's going to be huge. And there's actually going to be an opportunity for some players now in October who weren't able to be a part of the September group. And some of those players are actually players who are now set to make debuts with their new clubs after making moves in the summer. You have Matthew Hoppy, who has joined Mallorca in La Liga. You really want to see what he does. Obviously, we all know how good he looked in the Gold Cup. He's someone who absolutely could play a part in qualifying and should play a part in qualifying, especially if he can get into the lineup, can get on the field for Mallorca and get some minutes and get a chance to really play in La Liga. And that that kind of experience is going to be invaluable. He's someone to keep in my, in, an eye on this weekend as as he and Mallorca return to action. He gets a chance to make his debut. You have Nicholas Giacchini, who made a move in the in in the before the end of the transfer window, he joined Montpellier in Ligue 1. He's moved up from from League Two side Caen to to uh, Montpellier, and he's going to now play in the French First Division and have that opportunity. We all know uh, the things that Giacchini showed this summer, and he's definitely an intriguing prospect for sure. And it's great to see that he's going to get that opportunity to move up in class, move up a level, and sh- and and see if he can you know continue to make an impact there. Then you have Cameron Carter-Vickers with Celtic. He's on another loan, his 58th loan with Tottenham. And he joins this time around. It's not the league championship. He's going to Scotland, but he's playing for Celtic. And obviously, you're talking the you know Scottish Giants uh, high-profile team. And, and you hope he can kind of make the most of that opportunity. We all remember Tim Weah when Tim Weah went on loan for Celtic. And it was a good experience. And he did well there. And it definitely helped his career. Hopefully, he can do the same for Cameron Carter-Vickers. And then you have Eric Palmer-Brown who is uh, joining, I believe, the last place team in Liga. Uh, now, I want to call it Troyes, but I'm pretty sure it's Trois. I could be wrong. I don't know French. But anyway, Eric Bomber-Brown, who's an interesting player. I think he's a very good player. He's obviously been signed for Manchester City, and he's another player who's gone on the Loan Express, and he's been all over Europe going on all these different loans. Now he now he joins the team in France, who's you know they're in the relegation in early days, obviously, but a team that's looking like they're going to really fight to not be relegated in France. And he's a player to remember because Eric Palmer Brown, talented and versatile player, someone who could be in the conversation at center back, and he has that versatility. So all these players that I just mentioned made moves in the in the summer window, right before the summer window. And they all have chances to make debuts. I'm not sure when you're, you'll be listening to this. So maybe some of these players will have already made their debuts on Saturday. But hopefully you're listening to this uh, right away as soon as this drops, which would be around noon uh, noon on Saturday. But more likely, probably it'll be after. But there's going to be a lot to keep track of. And another player who's making, it's not a debut, but a return to, a, to the team they played for last season, Chris Richards. And for those who didn't who missed it or forgot, he has rejoined Hoffenheim on loan. He's he's joining them on a season long loan. And I know some people are like, oh, wait a minute. I thought he had a chance to, you know, get some playing time for Bayern this year. It wasn't looking good for him. It wasn't looking good for him for playing time for Bayern. Now he joins a Hoffenheim team where he started last season, 
played well. He has a good relationship with the manager there who managed him uh, with the Bayern second team and then obviously managed him last season uh, on his loan. It's a perfect place for Richards to get a full season as a starter in the Bundesliga to continue to hone his game and to show potential, uh, you know, landing uh, potential other teams, especially the Premier League, where we know that there are teams interested in Chris Richards. He will have more of a body of work to show there, and he will continue to hopefully put himself in position to be part of the U.S. men's national team setup and put throw his hat in the ring at center back, which you have to say is a pretty wide open competition right now. I mean, I think Miles Robinson coming off of the summer and the September friendlies, Miles Robinson is really locked in right now as a starter. I'd say he's the safest bet. I still say, look, as much as John Brooks looked terrible in September, he's still your starting center back for my money. I think he'll be fine. I think he'll rebound. He'll go back to Wolfsburg. He'll get things rolling again, although he is not starting for Wolfsburg in their match against Julian Green and Grutte Firth on Saturday. I actually have it on here as I record. Um, and actually, I think, yeah, Wolfsburg was winning 1-0 last time I checked. But center back, interesting competition there. You have Mark McKenzie, who showed well uh, against Honduras. You have Miles Robinson, obviously. You have James Sands, who obviously is coming off of a rough game. But there's a lot of names in the conversation at center back. But Chris Richards remains... A high-level prospect, someone who has huge upside and who I've been talking about forever and who I think with another full season as a starter in the Bundesliga will absolutely position himself to potentially jump in in World Cup qualifying and throw his hat in the ring as a potential World Cup center back. He's that good. I think he's that good, but we'll see what he does this season for Hoffenheim. Now moving on to MLS, and uh, I know I know I feel like I feel bad last last episode when or last week when I just kind of completely blew off the MLS uh, matches because again it's in, it's the international window. Stop playing matches in the international window, but the window is over. We can get back to talking about MLS, and they actually already returned to action on Friday. You had Atlanta United smoke Orlando City, and their push to a playoff spot continues. They're right there on the doorstep of pushing into the playoff places. And Gonzalo Pineda gets that W. And hopefully he can continue to to ride that momentum that Rob Valentino was able to, to establish while he was the interim head coach. And now we have the weekend action. Uh, and, and Portland also won. Portland beat the Vancouver Whitecaps in the late Friday match. Portland doing their thing again. They're in playoff position. There was that period of time when they were struggling, not getting results. And people were like, oh, is, is Savarisi in trouble? Could he get fi-? Like, no, they're okay. They're doing okay. They're back in playoff position. And they're continuing to be a threat. And unfortunately, Eric Williamson is out for the year, obviously, with the torn ACL. He just un- underwent surgery recently. And... You know, uh, best wishes for him on a speedy recovery. Super talented midfielder. Moving on to Saturday. Saturday's MLS action. If Hopefully you're listening to this midday Saturday, and this will give you a little bit of prep. And some of the marquee matchups in MLS on Saturday. You have the Colorado Rapids, second place in the Western Conference, Colorado Rapids. And how about that? I, we all know Bruce Arena, you can argue, is probably running, a, running away with Coach of the Year, right? Just because of how good New England has been. But Colorado, I mean, the Rapids, with the job Robin Frazier has done there, 
When you think about the resources that they have and they don't spend a ton of money, they're not out there going and signing, uh, you know, making big signings. I would argue that Robin Frazier, as he has as much acclaim to the Coach of the Year award as Bruce Arena. I think it's those two, and that's it. There's no one else. You know, maybe I'm forgetting somebody, but th- th- those two are it. I think for me, w- one and two, Arena probably still wins it. But I'm sorry, like I think Robin Frazier deserves more consideration. And they take on the LA Galaxy. That's going to be a great matchup to see if the Galaxy can halt the Rapids and their, their run that they're on. Uh, I think that's going to be a good one, a chance to see some of that young talent on both sides, see see who can step up in what's going to be a big-time Western Conference clash. In the Eastern Conference, the main event, New England Revolution hosting NYCFC. And as we know, NYCFC beat the Revs at Yankee Stadium in August uh, in what was a great matchup, and NYCFC looked really good there. But the Revs at home, we know how tough they are, and we know the Revs are going to be looking to kind of reassert their dominance, reassert themselves as the class of the East. They're at the top of the standing still, even after that loss to NYCFC. They have a nice cushion just because of the run of results that they've been on. But now that they have Matt Turner back, now that they have Tejon Buchanan back, uh, you know, and Carla, Carlos Gill has, you know, ret- I believe he's returned now. They have all the all the all the pieces in place, all the weapons in place to just continue their run, their seemingly inevitable run to the MLS Supporters Shield. But that's going to be a good one. You don't want to miss if you're going to see any MLS match this weekend. You're going to want to watch New England against NYCFC. Another match to keep an eye on, Red Bulls, D.C. United. The Red Bulls are just having a really bad season, right? And we knew there would be challenges. Obviously, you know, a team that they've gone, they went into the season going even younger. And you you knew that were going to be some growing pains. Gerhard Struber with his first full season in charge. And, you know, they showed some good signs early on, but it's been a rough go of late. And now they take on a D.C. United team that is kind of been what, maybe the Red Bulls has hoped that they would be in terms of just really blossoming under under a, a, a relatively new manager and DC United credit to them uh the the season that they've they've been able to kind of put together and, and some of the youngsters that are blossoming there like like Paredes and we'll see what they can do the Red the Red Bulls have been tougher at home but we just saw them lose to the fire not too long ago and give the fire their first road win of the season. So I think DC could absolutely go in there and, and take care of business and, and knock off the Red Bulls and keep the Red Bulls down, uh, pushing them even further down the Eastern conference table, which isn't a good thing. And if you're the Red Bulls and if you're Red Bull global, you got to start asking some questions about the project as a whole. They've gone to this whole like, you know, youth movement, young players only no big signings, no big names. And like, I don't know how that's supposed to appeal to to the to the masses and, and to the fans. How do you attract fans with a team that's just young players that, yes, they show some promise and yes, there's some glimpses of, of potential there. But what are you hanging your hat on as a team? I just don't see it. I just don't know what's going to happen with this Red Bulls team. And they just seem to not be heading in a great direction. So we'll see what they can do against DC United and another match to watch in the East. Enter Miami against the Columbus Crew, and who would have thought a few months back that we would look that we would talk about Inter Miami as a team that you know what they you gotta you call them a favorite against the Columbus Crew, and actually, when you look at the standings right now, Miami is only one point behind the Crew in the Eastern Conference table, and Miami has two games in hand, so Miami actually has more points per game than the Columbus Crew. Who would have seen that coming at the beginning of the year? And it just it's a it's a testament to two things. Number one, Miami with the run that they've been on, they've really you know they've become kind of the heart attack kids with these late uh, late goals, late wins that they've been putting together. 
finding a rhythm in recent months. And then you have the Columbus crew who's just, you know, they've just really have struggled to find consistency. Obviously we know they have quality. They're the reigning MLS cup champions, but they have struggled badly to find a rhythm as a team. And we'll see what they could do here. This is a game that you kind of, you know, obviously there's still a lot of games to be played still, but you know, if you're Caleb Porter, you're looking at this game and I know Miami, you're going down to Miami, but there's no reason why Columbus shouldn't be able to go to Miami and get a win. And no offense to Miami, Miami is proving themselves to be a much better team now than they were a few months back. But still, if you're the crew, if you're the reigning MLS Cup champions and you can't go to Miami and get at least a point, maybe it's time to just write this year off and and consider that maybe just this team, this crew team, isn't what we thought it could be. And I really thought this crew team, and obviously they've had some challenges, they've had some injuries, obviously, but... There's still you definitely feel like this team is underperformed. I feel like when you look at the players that they still have, their their record should be way better than it is. There's no doubting that. There's no disputing that. And FC Dallas plays host to the San Jose Earthquakes. And who does not want to see Ricardo Pepe follow up on his outstanding U.S. Men's National Team performance? You wonder, though, will Luchi Gonzalez start him in this match? He just started and played the whole way. Uh, against Honduras on Wednesday. So it's a bit of a quick turnaround. You could see uh, Luchin Gonzalez uh, choosing to sit Pepe and give him a rest. But Pepe's feeling himself right now. You know, he's coming off the game. He just came off. He's probably thinking, oh, San Jose, I'll get a couple more goals. So that's going to be one to watch there. Will Pepe start against Dallas? And now, I tell you what, Rich, Ricardo Pepe is becoming must-see TV. If he plays, you got to watch him. That's he's at that point right now. So we'll see if Luchi Gonzalez starts him. Dallas needs the points. That's the thing when it comes down to it. As much as you know what, if you're Luchi Gonzalez, you definitely want to protect your players. You don't want to run them down. You don't want to risk risk an injury by playing Pepe when, you know, maybe he's still not fully recovered from the grind of that start on Wednesday. But still, FC Dallas. They're on 25 points. They're five points out of the playoff places. Real Salt Lake right now is sitting in seventh in the seventh and final spot in the playoffs and obviously you have LAFC who's below the playoff line who you have to imagine if LAFC beats RSL all of a sudden they jump into playoff position if you're FC Dallas and you still have hopes of the playoffs and if you still think you can make a run to the playoffs you got to have this win against San Jose there's no other way to say it so Luchi's got Luchi Gonzalez has a tough decision to make as far as his lineup and you know what maybe you don't start Pepe but you definitely get bring him off the bench and hope that he can continue to just Conjure magic, which is what we've seen from Ricardo Pepe. And last but not least, LAFC RSL, as I mentioned, with a win, LAFC would actually catch RSL on points. They would be tied on 30 points. And considering all the challenges LAFC's had, the injuries, now Diego Rossi leaving via transfer, if they can start to turn things around, find some consistency, they're going to be a handful, even with Rossi leaving, once they have a healthy Carlos Vela back. And it's and look, Bob Bradley, Bob Bradley's still a good coach. And I think he, you know, as he's figuring these things out, this LAFC team with the style that they play, the quality that they still have, they're still going to be a threat. We all know about RSL and everything that they're dealing with, the challenges of their coaching situation with Freddy Juarez leaving, Pablo Mastroeni taking over. They're in a bit of a vulnerable state right now. I don't really see them holding on to a playoff spot. So we'll see if it's LAFC that takes it, if San Jose takes it, if FC Dallas takes it. I don't see Vancouver taking it either after they fired uh, Mark DeSantos in a bit of a shocking head-scratching decision for my money. But 
LAFC has that chance to catch RSL, and I think they do it. Now, I know I didn't give you any odds on these picks, but I'll, re- I'll run some down for you real quick. Just Colorado is at minus 170, the Galaxy plus 350. Now, obviously, the Rapids are really good at home, and you have the altitude factor as well. Plus 350 is a pretty big number, though, for a team as good as the Galaxy. I still have a hard time betting against the Rapids, considering their form and considering the challenges of playing at altitude for the Galaxy. So I'd probably still go the Rapids, even though my, even though they're at minus 170. Uh, you also have Seattle against Minnesota United. Seattle is only minus 115, which is a little surprising to me to be at home and only have that. that I, I take Seattle all day at minus 115. New England against NYCFC. New England is at plus 125 uh, to NYCFC's plus 175. I'm taking New England all day. New England at home. As much as NYCFC has been playing great, I'm taking New England plus 125. I run to put a put a bet down on that price. Red Bulls, DC United, Red Bulls plus 120, DC plus 185. As as much as the Red Bulls have been struggling, DC United's not not an intriguing pick. I probably go the draw here. I probably go the draw at plus 240 at Red Bull Arena. Inter Miami at minus 115. They are the favorite over the crew at plus 270. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, I have been so wrong on the crew because I keep betting on them to snap out of it. I keep, I don't know how many times now, I think I finally gave up on them a week or two ago or before the window, but could this be the game that the, that the crew can figure things out? They're plus 270. That's an interesting price. Uh, it, it's, t- it's, it's calling me. It's calling me plus 270. I can't do it. I'm going to go Inter Miami. I'm going to go Inter Miami at minus 115. Uh, Nashville, Montreal, Montreal plus 120. I like Nashville. Give me a Nashville at, two, at plus 210 because uh, Nashville, I like what I, I like what they're showing in uh, before the window, and I think I think they're going to get it done on the road there. FC Cincinnati, Toronto, the the battle of the disappointing seasons. Uh, that's uh, that's the basement derby there. Uh, FC Cincinnati plus 130. Not many matches you're going to see FC Cincinnati favored in, but that just shows you the bad, the, how bad a season Toronto FC is in the middle of. I still go Toronto FC, though, plus 175. You know, call me a sucker, Toronto FC. I think they go to Cincinnati and win there. Houston and Austin. Uh, Houston, you know what? How much longer does Ty Ramos have? They should be able to beat Austin. And they're a plus 100. They're the favorite. Austin's at plus 230. I'm going to go the Dynamo. If the Dynamo are going to respond to Ted Ramos, they have to step up in this game. If they don't respond in this game against a team like Austin, then that's it. If you're if you're Dynamo, if you're the Dynamo owners, you have to look at that and say, you know what? Either this is it, or maybe it's time to make a coaching change. And hopefully for Ramos, uh, his players respond and step up and deliver a victory for him because it's been months now since they've won a match. And uh, real quick, speed round here. Sporting KC, minus 180 to the Fire plus 420. Huge number. Still going KC, though, because the Fire are not great on the road. KC's really good at home. Take KC at plus 180. FC Dallas, minus 115 to the Earthquakes, plus 270. That's an interesting one. This is absolutely a perfect example of an MLS match where a road team goes in there and grabs a result. I actually think the Earthquakes could go in there and pull an upset. Earthquakes at plus two seventy. I think you could see a surprise there. LAFC RSL. I'm going. I'm. I'm going to ride LAFC for the rest of the way because I just think they're going to start figuring things out. And I think most people probably agree, which is why LAFC is at minus two thirty against RSL, who's at a whopping plus four eighty. Give me LAFC there. 
even though that's not a great, you're not going to make a lot of money on that. You have to put a lot of money down. So I'd probably just stay away from that one altogether. But LAFC plus uh, LAFC at minus 230, I'm taking them. Well, that's it. That wraps things up with the MLS picks. And that is it for this episode of the SBI show. I think we've covered uh, everything that I was hoping to get into. And it's... uh, it was a crazy week. It's been a crazy, crazy couple of weeks, actually, with the international window and everything that's gone on. And, you know, I've I've been running around myself. Uh, for those of you who may have missed it, I, uh, you know, I, I am I have joined the CBS Sports uh, Soccer gr- crew. Obviously, I was uh, I worked with them on the Nations League coverage and I worked with them on their recent World Cup qualifying coverage. And for those who didn't see my tweet on Friday. I'm actually working on the production team for their new Serie A studio show, which will debut on Sunday. If you're listening to this episode on Saturday and you have Paramount Plus, which you should have by now, by the way, if you have Paramount Plus, definitely check out the new show, Calcio and Cappuccino on Sunday. I'm working on that. I'm working as a writer on that. And uh, it's a great show. It's a, It's got some great potential, some great uh, people on there. And uh, if you're a Serie A fan, it's an absolute must. So a uh, little promo there for you. That's a, a new venture that I'm working on. Really excited about. Uh, it's a new world I'm entering here there with the TV people and working in the TV world. It's a little different, a lot different than the world I've spent the last 20 plus years in as a, as a, new, as a writer, as a, you know, written journalist. But you know what? You got to evolve and diversify and try new things and experience new things. And it's been fun. It's been fun working with great people and uh, definitely keep out. Keep an eye out for that. I'll keep doing my thing, though. We'll keep this. We'll keep the SBI show going. I'll keep SBI soccer.com going. Uh, there's some some plans in the works there and some things coming in October. So stay tuned for that for sure. Uh, I won't get into too much detail on that because there's still a lot of things that need to be worked out. But uh I've got a lot going on and uh, it's good news. It's good news because, you know, busy is good. And you know what? The way the soccer game is blowing up in this country, I am going to stay busy and it's fun. It's great. So definitely come along for the ride. And as always, thank you for listening. And as always, if you have advice or if you want to give me some props or if you want to tell me what you hate or love about the episode and about the show in general, let me know because we're we're a work in progress and hopefully now with the window gone by things will get into a little more comfortable rhythm starting next week and i know i feel like i've said that 50 times now but hopefully next week is when things can get into a more a better groove in terms of episodes and delivering on a consistent basis and getting guests and doing all the things that i've wanted to do with the sbi show but hopefully you enjoyed it and definitely send your feedback my way but that's all for now I'm Ivis Glarsa. This is the SBI Show.